This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Last week, the state of Nevada re-elected a Democrat to the U.S. Senate. That was a decisive moment. Catherine Cortez Masto's win gave the Democrats their 50th seat in the Senate. The runoff in Georgia next month will surely be dramatic, but the deal was sealed in Nevada. Our contributor, Stephania Teledreed, covered the race from Las Vegas, and early on the morning of Election Day, she was at a rally held by the Culinary Workers Union. Catherine Cortez Masto addressed the crowd. Are we ready to win? So the mood in the room was ecstatic. But at the national level, many people actually thought that Senator Cortez Masto was at risk of losing this election. And beyond that, that Republicans would make significant gains among Latino voters. What happened instead, as you know, is a more complicated story. Stefania has been covering Latino politics for The New Yorker, not only in Nevada, but in Texas, Florida, and elsewhere in the country. To better understand what happened here, I wanted to talk with Chuck Rocha and Mike Madrid. They host a podcast that I listen to called The Latino Vote. They're both political consultants on opposite sides of the aisle. Chuck was a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders. Mike was a founding member of the Lincoln Project. And it's just been so refreshing for me listening to their podcast to hear two veteran political analysts having a really nuanced and honest conversation about the state of the Latino vote. What do you make of the narrative that Latinos are increasingly turning to the Republican Party? Go ahead, Mike. That's right on the tee for you right there. Don't try to pull your shoulder. <laughs> I've been waiting to jump in. Don't, don't I'm, I'm pull your shoulder when you get this now. <laughs> Easy. Okay. So, yeah. So, <laughs> um, the um, it's important to understand that in many ways, the Hispanic shift rightward 
happened in 2020. Hmm. Uh, David Shore, I think one of the more prominent data scientists in the Democratic Party, put this really well. The realignment basically already happened. The, the new baseline for Hispanic support in the Republican Party is now sitting at 37, 38, 39 percent, the that's high huge. 30s. Mm-hmm. It, it is huge. And if you had told me that six years ago, I would have said that's crazy. Mm. Uh, so, so it is huge. The shift happened. And we can debate whether it went down to 36 or up to 39. But this, it, the way to look at this is to understand that realignments occur over decades, right? When, when the Republican Party sought to realign the South – with the Southern strategy, that began in the late 60s, 1970 campaign, and it didn't re- really manifest itself until 1994. Mm. That's that's 25 years, and that's essentially what I think the story of the Latino community is going to be, is it's a generational change. We're not seeing, for example, a big registration numbers for Republicans. The registration numbers with Latinos are staying the same for Democrats. But when you look at the precincts in the Rio Grande Valley, if you look at the precincts in southern New Mexico, if you look at the precincts in Colorado, if you look at the performance in Nevada and in Arizona and even in California this year, there is a discernible rightward shift with the raw data, meaning it happened. We can we can argue about how big or how little, but the simple fact is if you look at the narrative, especially over time, it's undeniable that it's, it's happening. Mm-hmm. The one place where we have a pretty clear picture of what has happened with Latinos is Florida. Uh, Some people talk about Florida as an exception, but, you know, we saw that Miami-Dade, a historically blue county, went Republican for the first time in years. Mike, I want to start with you. You've made the case that Florida is increasingly isolated from the rest Mm -hmm. of the country. What do you mean by that? Well, it's not only isolated demographically and and the combination of the pillars of the Republican Party that constitute uh, the GOP is um, different than what you see from some of the more broader uh, states in the union. You also have an extraordinarily different construct of Latino voters. As you mentioned, uh, Cubans and Puerto Ricans tend to dominate the voter model there. It's one of the few states where Mexican-Americans are not the uh, majority, certainly the overwhelming majority of the Latino voters there. But it is undeniable that Ron DeSantis did significantly overperform. And when I say significantly, I mean by significantly. Right. So we have we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is unique? What is different? We know the Cuban story. We know the Venezuelan story, but what we're seeing with Puerto Ricans who have traditionally broken more Democrat is this consolidation under the GOP banner as well. And Mexican-Americans, most surprisingly, Hmm. um, breaking towards the Republican Party. I don't think I've ever seen, except for maybe New Mexico back in the 80s, Republicans win the the, the Mexican-American vote. I think a lot of it has to do with the construct of the service economy that we have in Florida, the push for DeSantis to open the economy and keep these workers employed. Um, but it does stand as a unique outlier in terms of not just uh, the Latino vote, but obviously with this huge red wave, uh, a state that that does not look like the rest of the country at this moment in time. Chuck, how do you expect Democrats to respond to the trends that we're seeing in Florida? Certainly when, when I was um, reporting about the 2020 election from Miami, um, the message that I got from voters and even from some campaign operatives was that the party wasn't investing nearly enough as it should in the community there. Do you think this is giving them any reason to revert course? What what can we expect to see? I, I wish that we would go down and compete because Barack Obama 
taught us that if you show up with the right message, you can get the majority of Cubans, even if it's small, mm -hmm. to vote for you. Of course, he was transformational, and all you people on Twitter, I get it. You're out once in a lifetime, blah, blah, blah. But if you just walk away, National Democrats, and you're just like, that's an outlier. They'll be red. It's a red state forever. That starts bleeding into Georgia. That starts bleeding into little other places that we are already underinvesting in uh, year-round for long-term bilingual organizing. And Chuck, I want us to briefly focus on Pennsylvania, where there are a lot more Latinos than people recognized. And most of them are Puerto Rican. Tell us about the work that you did for John Fetterman's campaign there. I wasn't working directly for the Fetterman campaign, but instead the largest Senate super PAC in America that spent the most money, I'm proud to say this, on bilingual advertising than any single operation in America. That means all the other congressional campaigns and Senate campaigns combined. This super PAC invested starting six months out in most of these elections and not just doing Spanish TV, but doing radio, doing mail, doing newspaper ads, and had a field team on the ground in each one of these states knocking on doors. Mike talks about a new baseline. He'll continue to talk about a new baseline. Is it 34? Is it 36? Is it 42 for God's sakes? What we know and what I know in Pennsylvania is when you spend a lot of time and effort showing up in a culturally competent way, you can get that number back to the 70-30 number because that's what hmm. we did. And that's not an exit poll. That's a daily tracker in Spanish in a concentrated area where all the Latinos only live in about 35 precincts. So we showed up on the radio. We showed up in their mailboxes. We showed up at their doors, but we did it more than just the last two weeks of GOTV. That is key. And then you take the importance of having me and white folks around me who agreed with me that when the Philadelphia Phillies made it to the United States uh, World Series, United States World Series, how'd you catch that, Madrid? On the World Series, that we bought the Spanish language simulcast because guess what Puerto Ricans really love? They love baseball and they have a history mm. of baseball. So these little things don't make all the difference, but it means that you have a better chance of getting more people to show up that are Latino, Latino voters. And me and Mike talked about this and I know I've already talked too much, but also you should know that uh, the Republicans were not competing against me in Spanish in those markets, mm. which also helps a lot. And talking about margins, you both know all too well that this is a game of margins, right? Uh, they appear to be getting tighter and tighter. But at the same time, what we saw in places like Texas is that many Latinos cast a vote against extremism. Mike, would it be fair to say that theirs was a vote for moderation? I think that's absolutely one of the findings that we're going to see. If you look at precincts like Tim Ryan's in Ohio, what you saw was these dramatic shifts away from these Trumpy positions in the most Hispanic precincts in Ohio towards Tim Ryan, like a 20-point swing. It's hard to draw any other conclusions than the moderates candidates that are positioning for as working class candidates on working class issues in the Democratic Party are doing significantly better than those that are leaning into this culturally leftward narrative hmm. that is seeing performance drop. And this is an important way to look at the vote. You've got a lot of especially Latino Democratic members of Congress making a really big mistake saying we've got more Latino Democrats in Congress. Uh, how can we have lost the Latino vote or, or not improved? And the answer is very simple, math. The way that works is the margins in most of these districts are tightening and not small. They're tightening considerably. 
And so the, a lot of these candidates in the Democratic caucus, I think, are making the mistake of leaning to the left when moderation is where Hispanics are responding. Hmm. It's, it's showing up in Ohio. It's showing up in the Rio Grande Valley. It's showing up in Los Angeles County. It's showing up in Miami, South Dade. Uh, so I, it, it, to me, it's pretty incontrovertible evidence. And I guess Nevada is also an example of that, right? I mean, the results that we saw during the Senate race. Nevada is a perfect example of that. And I would even argue even Arizona is an example of that. But Nevada is especially – look, when the dust settles and we start getting the precinct data in, uh, Senator uh, Cortez Masto, who's also the first Latina in the U.S. Senate, will probably win by a smaller margin than she won by six years ago. Right. And her Latino numbers will probably come in exactly what they were six years ago, which which you know, people saying that the, you know, Latinos helped improve the, the vote for the Senate. It's really hard to make that case. And I'm a huge advocate. I've spent my entire career of turning voters out and registering uh, Latinos all over the country. But I'm also a believer in math. You have to look at yourself honestly to get a really good assessment of where the community is at. The Latino vote probably went down a little bit in 2022, and most of the evidence suggests that it stayed from a partisan split, if not exactly where it was in the 2020 race, that it moved a little bit even further to the right. Hmm. Chuck, do you share that view about Nevada? Of course I don't. That's what makes me and Mike Madrid so great. You should listen to our podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Mike does make some good points, but I'd also caution folks, and what Mike is saying is true, but you also, for those of you looking at people on Twitter and people pontificating about this election, Catherine Cortez Mastos got elected in a presidential year. I'll tell you something about Latino voters that Mike Madrid can't argue with, is that more of us show up in a presidential year. There's one thing on Tuesday night that, that, that born true. That is, we elected Monica De La Cruz, a MAGA Latina Republican in the Valley and elected on the other side, Maxwell Alejandro Frost from the far left side of the party in Orlando. They both represent each end of the Latino electorate. And then we make up all the different sectors in between. You've both dedicated your careers to raising awareness about Latino voters and making sure that political campaigns take our community's voices into considerations. I wonder in 2020, If you can speak to what's changed since you started working in politics, is there more diversity? Are people finally getting the message? And are they pouring enough money into the community? Chuck? Oh, man, you wanted me to scratch that itch. Whew. So let me say this, that me and Mike Madrid bring over 60 years of campaign experience. And we probably have more experience than uh, the top Latino operatives in the country now because there's probably like maybe three other ones. That's a problem. It's embarrassing. And in the most marginal congressional and Senate races in America, there was not one Latino campaign manager. There was not a single there was not a single Latino majority on media and messaging firm working for a single race when 15 of these races were over 20% Latino population. That shows you we still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Mike, what's your take? You know, I've had the unique experience of working at the top level of uh, campaigns in this country on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it's very, very rare. You know, and, and when I remember most uh, successfully with Republican campaigns was the George W. Bush campaigns. Hmm. It was a seamless operation from top to bottom, kind of what Bernie Sanders replicated in 2016 right. is what George W. Bush did. And, and that was when you saw Republicans the most successful. Bush getting 37% in 2000 and 44% in 2004. 
What surprised me the most in working with the Democratic Party was how calcified it really was and the Hmm. lack of diversity at the top of the Democratic Party. Like it's more white probably than the Republican Party, which may sound peculiar, but I can go back historically and say in the Republican Party, there's always been Alex Castellanos. There's always been Lionel Sosa. There's always been the Frank Yeras of the world. And the Democratic Party, I'm kind of like Sergio Ben-Dixon, you know, maybe from, from, you know, the Carter administration. And that's kind of, kind of it. When you look back, when Chuck makes the point that there are no Latino campaign operatives in the Democratic Party uh, that were running in any of these, you know, very diverse districts, that does not surprise me at all. And there's a the, the problem. This is not. I'm not being critical of of either party. I'm being critical of both parties. We can't just resort to using Google Translate for commercials in English and, and expect that they're going to work in Spanish. And that's still happening. We can't expect people uh, to have this hierarchical white system on both sides of the aisle and expect Latino voter, voters to, to show up in higher numbers when they're not seeing themselves reflected in campaigns, when they're not hearing messages tailored to their voices and to their communities and to their experience. And it's something that I think needs to be reconciled and very quickly, not for partisan purposes, but for the health of our democracy purposes. And do you worry now that the narrative that we're hearing coming out of the midterms is that Democrats exceeded everyone's expectations, that the party might take for granted the Latino vote as they have in the past? Look, the same the same people that are denying that this shift has happened were the same Latino, you know, professional political operatives in the Democratic Party that denied uh, the losses in 2014, that denied Hillary Clinton's weaknesses in 2016, that denied Donald Trump's movement in 2020. It's the same people doing the same thing. Do I think the Democratic Party is going to make an adjustment? No, I do not. Uh, hmm. Do I think that there will continue to be a gradual movement to the right? Uh, yes, I think it will be very marginal. And I don't think it's because Republicans are doing anything right. I think it's because of simple demographics. Republicans are getting an, a larger incremental share of the Latino vote beca- despite themselves, not because of themselves. The Democratic Party could absolutely make the adjustments to stop it, but they didn't do it in 2014. They didn't do it in 2016. They didn't do it in 2020. They didn't do it in 2022. There's no evidence to suggest that they're going to make that adjustment because too many of them are vested in the system as it exists, and I don't see them making that play. And I think that the big change is, and I push back on Mike on one piece of this, there were groups that were doing good work that made up for a lot of the campaign shortcoming, or we would not have a senator in Arizona, Pennsylvania, or Nevada, because the Senate Majority Pack and other partners hired Latino consultants. I'm one of them, but there were at least six other Latino-owned firms that worked for these organizations to go out and reach the community, to hire canvassing crews on the ground. What worries me the most about us having such a, and I can't say this enough, historic night, is that Democrats look around at each other and be like, man, we did good. We got this all figured out now. Y'all just go back to your corners. Let's just keep on doing what we've been doing because now we got this stuff figured out. When I'm here to tell you, friends, once we get through the data, not that we did bad, but that we probably didn't do as good as you may be hearing we did. And we, there's still a lot of work to do because there's one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt on the work I've done all weekend looking at these numbers is that in Latino districts, where there was a Senate campaign spending millions of dollars in Spanish, those CDs overperformed compared to CDs where that investment never happened. Um, Looking ahead to 2024, what are some of the trends that you're paying close attention to? 
And does the roadmap to victory look any different than it did in 2020? Mike? I think that's a great question. I was very in intricately involved with the uh, 2020 presidential campaign with the Lincoln Project. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I've sat in that seat and had to make those calls on the spending decisions. And I will tell you that the map to 270 in 2024 is going to look very different than it did in 2020. Florida is a Republican state. It is not a swing state. Ohio is a Republican state. It is not a swing state. The battlegrounds of Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin are very, very tight, and they are not secure enough to ensure a Democratic win. The Democrats are going to have to look to broaden their base. North Carolina becomes central. Incidentally, the Latino vote will probably be one of the deciding votes in North Carolina in 2024. Let me say that again. The Hispanic vote will probably be decisive in a state like North Carolina. That's pretty deep. That tells you how deep this is into the fabric of America at this point. So this shift, this demographic shift, and the margins with which Democrats are winning as they get smaller are changing the calculus for the way a president finds that 270 magic number to be, to be elected president of the United States. That's not going to change. That's going to every – well, I'm sorry. That is going to change every year into a direction where more and more states are likely to come into play. And I think both campaigns are, are important. It's important that both campaigns make that adjustment. Chuck? I think that it's going to come down to – Six states in 2024 again. And I guess what? To Mike's point, our community has big populations in all of them. It starts with what we call the blue wall. Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania have an emerging great Latino population. A couple of facts for you. 300,000 Puerto Ricans have moved to Pennsylvania in the last 10 years. Fact, in Wisconsin, there are more Latinos than there are African-Americans. And in Michigan, I ran a statewide uh, Spanish language uh, operation in the off year this year. And you would be amazed at the number of second generation explosion of all these Mexicans, mainly from Texas, that moved to work in the auto industries in the 70s and 80s. And now all their sons and daughters have sons and daughters. And it's an explosion. And then the ones That's that you know which is Georgia, where there's over a million Latinos that live in Georgia, and then Arizona and Nevada, right back to where we started. Well, gentlemen, thank you so, so much for your time and your insights. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Political consultant Chuck Rocha. And we also heard from Mike Madrid. They both appear on the podcast The Latino Vote, and they spoke with The New Yorker's Stephania Taladrid. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. 
Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They are one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Not too long ago, we started publishing a new column on NewYorker.com called Afterward. It's written by the great Susan Orlean, and Afterward is an obituary column of sorts. But instead of focusing on the lives of the highly newsworthy, Susan writes about people and animals and even things that never made it to the front page. As we near the end of the year, we'll be taking note of some of those lives here at the New Yorker Radio Hour. So here's Susan Orlean reading from her piece, The Ultimate Tiger Mom. Unlike most tiger mothers, Collar Wally was, in fact, a tiger. Her life was characterized by unusualness. She was unusually large for a female. So big, observers often mistook her for a male, and other tigers were scared to fight with her. She was unusually friendly. Tigers are solitary and shy, but Collar Wally seemed relaxed about venturing near people and was often spotted afoot in the Pench Tiger Reserve in Madhya Pradesh in India, where she lived. Most notably, she was unusually fertile. She gave birth to 29 cubs in her lifetime, which accounts for almost 1% of all the tigers in India. She was also unusually well-known. Her mother, Badi Mata, was the subject of the popular BBC documentary Tiger, Spy in the Jungle from 2008. Tigers are generally said to succeed just one time out of ten, but this tiger kills on average every third try. With narration by David Attenborough, the documentary followed the life of Badi Mata and her litter of four cubs, one of which was Collar Wally. Even at this size, each cub consumes around two kilos of meat at a single sitting. After this celebrated start, Collar Wally lived an unusually long time. The average tiger lifespan is 15 years, which she bettered by almost two. When she died in January, she lay in state on a flower-strewn pyre, and her funeral was attended by a crowd including Madhya Pradesh's forest minister and a number of other government officials. Mourning was widespread. 
Color Wally was formally known, less poetically, as T-15. In 2008, she was the first tigress in Pench to be fitted with a radio collar, hence her nickname Collar Wally, which means collar wearer in Hindi. That same year, Collar Wally gave birth to her first litter, but she fumbled as a new mother, and all her cubs died of pneumonia. In time, though, she developed serious motherhood skills, and her next litters flourished. In 2010, she gave birth to a mega litter of five cubs. Tiger litters are usually three or four in size, and half of all cubs born die in the first years of their lives. To rear a whopping five cubs is world-class. Collar Wally was a tough-love kind of mother, letting her cubs start hunting earlier than a more helicopter-parenting sort of tigress. Her methodology was so successful that her cubs not only overachieved, they even stayed in touch with her after they moved away, which is said to be rare in the tiger world. Tigers are India's national animal. And in 1973, a conservation effort called Project Tiger was launched to try to stabilize their declining population. Tigers with wanderlust that leave conservation areas are sometimes killed by farmers, and farmers are sometimes killed by tigers. The market for tiger parts, which are believed to have health benefits, including as aphrodisiacs, continues to flourish. Nevertheless, conservation efforts coupled with Kalarwali's fecundity have made a difference, and India's tiger population is slowly rising. At Kalarwali's funeral, following her death from natural causes, social distancing was observed, but the occasion was equally stirring. The enormous tigress was covered with yellow, orange, and white carnations, and she was shrouded in white except for her magnificent head. A line of mourners approached the wooden pyre one by one and offered her flowers before she was cremated. Kalarwali's remarkable fruitfulness did raise the risk of her cubs inbreeding, but on balance, her mothering was a net positive and her loss a tragedy. After the funeral, the chief minister of the state wrote on Twitter, the forests of Madhya Pradesh will always resonate with the roar of the cubs of the queen of Pench Tiger Reserve. Susan Orlean reading from The Ultimate Tiger Mom from April of this year. You can read Susan's column afterward at newyorker.com. And we'll hear more from her on the New Yorker Radio Hour in the coming weeks. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado. This episode was produced by Emily Botin, Brita Green, Kalalia, 
David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.